Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family day by day and week by week. We're meeting online right now, but we normally meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can catch our weekly gatherings live by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church online. We would love to hear from you. This week, Jeff provided a message based at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus about God's commands, including two of the Ten Commandments and two commands Jesus gives. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning and welcome to week six of Long Story Short. This year we're taking a full journey through the Bible and we are encouraging you to join along. Now for many of us, that means following the year-long reading plan as we go through every single book. Others may be taking one chapter a day, but either way, remember the main goal is to open the Word daily. We want to create this habit of meeting God in the text every day. Now although some days seems easier to find God than others, right? I mean, if you're keeping up With the reading plan today, you will be reading some of Israel's holiness laws, which seem like this smorgasbord of random commands. Respect your mother and father. Don't harvest the edges of your fields. Uh, Don't curse the deaf. Don't put things in front of blind people so they trip and fall. Don't hate your brother. Don't make a shirt with two different materials. Don't be a witch. Rise in the presence of the elderly. Keep the Sabbath. Now, as you read this today, you may wonder, what? And also, how? Like, what about us? These are excellent questions and ones we're going to try and tackle next Sunday. Leviticus can be one of the more confusing books in the Bible. And for those reading through it right now, let me just go ahead and give you a word of encouragement. You can do it. You're going to finish on Wednesday. And I give you permission to go ahead and break your diet, eat that dessert after dinner. I mean, as long as it's kosher. Uh, And Thursday, we get to start a new book, Numbers. All the accountants rejoice. Another tough book. But next Sunday, we're going to come back to Leviticus and talk about what it means to be holy. So if you're worried or confused as you read these laws today, we're going to take a deeper look at them next week. But for today, we're picking up where we left off last week at the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, last week, we focused on the fact that God's rescue of Israel came before the list of rules associated with being identified as his people. 19 comes before 20. Yahweh establishes the relationship before the rules. He establishes a covenant in order to show that Israel, these people, are Yahweh's treasured possession. And so they can be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Israelites are Yahweh's covenant partner who represent him among the nations. Now, with this context, we're ready to talk about probably the most famous event at Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Now, we've probably all seen pictures of Moses coming down the mountain with two tablets. And maybe you were assigned this prop in like VBS design. But have you ever wondered why there are two tablets? Did the Ten Commandments not fit on one tablet? Do they put five on one and five on the other? Does one tablet contain all the laws relating to God and the other one, the ones relating to other people? Um, So what's going on? Well, here's where the world of archaeology can help give us some insight. As it turns out, in the ancient Near East where the Israelites are living in, it was standard practice 
to make duplicate copies of a treaty, one for each party. Each party would put their copy in the most holy place in the temple of their community so that their deity would be aware of the stipulations and could ensure loyalty on both sides. But when Moses comes down the mountain carrying two stone tablets, it's this unmistakable sign that Israel was entering into a treaty as a nation. But this treaty is different. In the case of Yahweh's covenant with Israel, there's only one deity involved who can ensure covenant faithfulness of both parties. So both copies were placed in the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place of Yahweh's temple. This is no treaty with another nation. This is a covenant with the God who delivered them out of Egypt, has gone before them protecting them, and whose presence hovers over their camp and lights up a mountain like a consuming fire. And this God is not only the initiator, but also the protector and the enforcer of the covenant they have joyfully agreed to. Now, speaking of the Ten Commandments, there's another name we could call them, the Decalogue or the Ten Words. Now, in Greek, deca means ten and logos means word. So the Decalogue is the Ten Words which is what the Bible consistently calls these commands, simply the ten words. Each word, of course, is more than a single word. It's an item on a list. But you might be surprised to learn that there's disagreement over how to count the Ten Commandments. They aren't numbered in the text, and different traditions divide between the commands in different places. So you may have grown up learning them in a different order than other people. But one way of reading puts the first few sentences together because they're all about the worship of other gods. Included in this first command would also be the prohibition of making idols, because in the ancient world, idols and worship went hand in hand. You would not make an idol unless your intention was to worship it, and you couldn't worship other gods without having an idol. So since they present the same concept, you could say idols and worship belong together as one word or one command, but not just conceptually. They also belong together grammatically. Notice that in Exodus 20, verse 3, the word gods is plural. They were not to have other gods. And then in verse 4, they're not to make an image, singular. But then in verse 5, God says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, which is again plural. So verse 5 follows the command against idol making that many people take as rule 2, but on its own, it's a bit incoherent. The command not to bow down to them could point back to the plural word gods in verse 3. So conceptually and grammatically, these instructions seem to be bound together as one word or command. And then finally, Edward Greenstein points out in his Rhetoric of the Ten Commandments that when read together, they form a chiasm. Now, whether you number them one or two or just one, the prohibition of idols underscores the seriousness of the command to worship Yahweh only. You might notice that the commands make no effort to convince Israelites that Yahweh is the only God. Instead, they instruct Israel to worship only Yahweh. So in a sea of deity options, Yahweh is the only legitimate deity deserving of worship. So rather than monotheism, which is the existence of one God, the Ten Commandments promote henotheism, which is the worship of one God. The Israelites and their neighbors, they regularly assumed that other gods existed. But the uniqueness of Yahweh is that he calls for exclusive worship. So we can say that the first word or couple of words, depending on how you want to number them, is worship only Yahweh. The command builds from there. If Yahweh is your God and all these commands that follow are going to make you different people so that people around you know you worship Yahweh and you're his designated representatives, then there should be something in here about how important your role is, right? 
Well, that's what comes next. Rule number two or three is also widely known, but maybe not fully understood in context. Like it doesn't even seem like the translators can really agree on how to word it. Maybe you memorize the King James Version. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And maybe you, like many people, thought, what does that even mean? Or you grew up reading the NIV. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. So either way, it seems like the dominating view on the verse is that you are prohibited from using God's name as a swear word. Now, growing up, my brothers and I were careful not to even come close to making that mistake or saying words like gosh or geez louise or holy cow. Like those were off the table because substitute swear words like thinly veil the real thing and they exhibit the same toxic attitude. Now, clearly, it's not advisable to use God's name as a swear word. I mean, dishonoring God in any way is a serious matter. But this command isn't limited to just what comes out of your mouth. Now, in her book, Bearing God's Name, Dr. Carmen Imes says, At Sinai, he warns the people not to bear his name in vain. Keeping this command, then, involves much more than not saying, Oh, Yahweh, when someone cuts in front of you on the highway, or a disgruntled Jesus Christ when your team misses a touchdown pass. Keeping the command not to bear Yahweh's name in vain changes everything about how we live. So Dr. Imes spent the better part of a decade studying this command from every possible angle, and her work sheds new light on what this command is all about. She makes the point that in the Hebrew, it reads, you shall not carry the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. The word translated as carry in the Hebrew is the word nasah. It means to lift up or to bear or to carry. Now, most translators have assumed that carry the name must be a figurative way of referring to speaking God's name. But Nassau only refers to speech in cases where there are extra speech-related clues in the context, like lips, voice, say, cry out, and no such clues appear in this command. But if we look in the immediate context at Sinai, we find a different interpretive key. Someone else at Sinai is said to carry names. It's the high priest. On his breastplate are 12 precious stones engraved with names, one stone for each tribe. In Exodus 28, 29, the high priest is said to carry the names of the sons of Israel on his person as he moves about the tabernacle. Moses' brother Aaron, who becomes Israel's first high priest, literally carries these tribal names whenever he's on duty. It's his vocation to represent all 12 tribes before Yahweh. Aaron also wears a name on his forehead, the name Yahweh. Tied to his turban is a gold medallion engraved with the words, Holy to Yahweh. That's just two words in Hebrew, Kadesh la Yahweh. The L in front of Yahweh's name is the customary way of indicating ownership. With la Yahweh on his forehead, it's clear that the high priest is set apart for service to Yahweh. He belongs exclusively to Yahweh. So it's also his vocation to represent Yahweh to the 12 tribes. So what does this have to do with the second command? Well, think back to the dramatic declaration of Exodus 19 when Israel first arrived at Mount Sinai. That's where God bestowed titles on his people like treasured possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. As his treasured possession, Israel's vocation, the thing they were meant to do is to represent their God to the rest of humanity. They function in priestly ways, mediating between Yahweh and everyone else. They're set apart for his service. Now we can see how this connects to the high priest. He is a visual model of the vocation of the entire nation. Just as the high priest represents Yahweh to them, so they represent Yahweh 
to the whole nation. By looking at Aaron, every Israelite is reminded of their calling as a nation. Just as he is set apart for service, so are they. In fact, in Moses' last sermon before his death in Deuteronomy 7-6, he calls them a people, Kodesh Yahweh. What is true of the high priest is true of them as well. At Sinai, Yahweh claims this nation as his very own and then releases them to live out their calling. That calling is to bear Yahweh's name among the nations. That is to represent him well. So do you see how this is so much bigger than how when people say like just God's name? Swearing in the name and saying the name are only a part of a much bigger picture, a whole life-encompassing way of bearing the name. Other nations are watching Israel to find out what Yahweh is like. That's why they're told not to carry his name in vain. If they claim to be Yahweh's people and yet they live no differently than their neighbors, they're going to bear the name in vain. They belong to him and they represent him among the nations together. Now, these first two commands echo this covenant formula. I will be your God and you will be my people. So number one, worship Yahweh only. Number two, represent him well. Now you can show your love for Yahweh by showing your love for other humans. So in our country, so many people cling to the constitution and specifically the bill of rights to show the freedoms that they are entitled to. But Yahweh's laws function differently. The entire list of 10 commands functions like a bill of other people's rights. Living by these rules ensures that everyone has a right to rest and a right to life, a right to property and to an untarnished reputation and exclusive marriage. Parents are honored. Uh, Can you see why these commands are such good news? If everyone lived this way, we would have such harmony. So you just stop and you think about humanity living under God's rule and reign in harmony with one another. Like what's the first picture of that somewhere else in the Bible? Page one, like in the garden, God creates humanity in his image. Humans' physical existence represent God's rule on the earth. There's this kinship. We're part of God's royal family. Our presence is a symbol of his presence in and to the world. And humanity is given a mandate to carry out God's good purposes in and for the world, cultivating and protecting his good creation. But as we talked about a few weeks ago, the plan goes off the tracks. But God redeems the situation by choosing using one family through whom he would form a people, through whom he could restore this representative role. That's what we have at Mount Sinai. God renewing a covenant relationship with a group of people who will represent him on earth by the way they worship and they live with one another. But again, the goal is not so they can keep this community to themselves, but that they can be a light to the nations, the rest of the world, and invite them to know their God, Yahweh. Like, does this sound familiar at all? It should. It's the same call we have on our lives today. When asked what the greatest command is, the greatest word in the Hebrew law, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest command, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. You love God and love people. Why? Jesus would say, Because you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The way you treat others reflects on who you call Lord and God. The way you carry the name of Yahweh 
defines whether he is the God you worship. Like, is he your God alone, or have you bowed down to other lesser gods? And if you worship Yahweh alone, how is it shown in the way that you live? Now, we give the law this bad rap. And I'm glad we don't have to worry about some of the like, detailed orders of the sacrificial system, but the law isn't bad. The law was good because the law leads to God. That's why the psalmist can say, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Like, is anybody else having a hard time delighting in Leviticus? <laughs> but this law is more than just rules and regulations. It's teaching about how we live. There are a few things worse than being lost and not knowing which way to go. But the law gives us a way. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of Yahweh. The law of Yahweh is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of Yahweh are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The very first story, humanity is created and given a purpose. Israel is chosen and given a purpose. And what is true for them is true for us today. But the way into the family of God is no longer about the bloodline in your veins, but about the blood that was shed on a cross, opening up a door for all people to join through faith and trust. It's what God desired for Adam and Eve trust in me, like live by my ways. It's how Abraham was justified. He trusted in God and it was counted as righteousness. And today the invitation still stands. Trust in God. Worship Yahweh alone and bear his name well in this world. This is how we are grafted into the people of God. Peter had to have like closed his eyes and pictured the Israelites standing at Mount Sinai. And then he reconciled that with all that he had seen God doing in his day when he wrote to this mixed group of Jews and Gentiles. And he said, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's the same language God uses of the Israelites, now applied to everyone who calls Yahweh Lord. And all this happens under one name, Jesus. Paul writes, one sentence to open his letter to the Ephesians. And we break it up into about eight sentences in English. But in it, he lays down this plan. What once was a mystery has now been revealed. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we 
who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with a seal in Him, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Paul says God has been working through us, the Israelites, but now you, the Gentiles, have been included in our redemption, our inheritance, our calling. God's plan for the redemption of the world now includes this church of Jesus Christ, the people who make up a new family, who worship Yahweh alone and show that allegiance through the way they live and love those around them. What was true of Israel at Sinai is true of us today. Yahweh says, I am your God, you are my people. But there's another interesting connection between us and our Israelite ancestors. They may not be our blood ancestors, but we are still connected by blood. See, in Exodus 24, after they have received instructions from Yahweh, and Moses comes down and mediates this covenant between the people and God, there is this detail about being covered by the blood of this covenant. When Moses went and told the people all Yahweh's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything Yahweh has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything Yahweh had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as a fellowship offering to Yahweh. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything Yahweh has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. So in their agreement to trust Yahweh and be in a covenant relationship with Him, there is a sacrifice of life and being covered by the blood. Now, they had already been protected and delivered from Egyptian slavery by the covering of the blood of a lamb. And this Passover event becomes this yearly celebration to remember how Yahweh brought them salvation. And it's at this Passover meal that Jesus brings all these events to their culmination and then transforms them with new meaning because there is a new lamb to be sacrificed himself. There is new blood that will be covering people, His blood. There is a new covenant between God and man, no longer written on tablets of stone, but by the Spirit living within us. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to His disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so the words of the prophet Jeremiah, they've got to start ringing in the ears of the apostles at the table, thinking back to what he had said. The days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares Yahweh. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, 
and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know Yahweh, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Because it's at that table, Jesus declares a new covenant one of his blood. And each week we celebrate this meal and this new covenant. We take a piece of bread and we remember the body of Jesus who lived and died for us. We take a cup of wine and we remember the blood which was poured out for us, covering us in this new covenant. And we declare Jesus is Lord. Yahweh is our God and we are his people. So let us worship him alone and live in a way so that we don't carry his name in vain, but we live as lights to the world so that they can declare the glory of our God. Let's go to the table. That's it for this week. Thank you for checking in with us. And we'll be back with another episode next time.